It's time to hit the trail as we present your monthly dose of travel, tourism, wine and dine. This is Travel Radio Australia. Here's your host, Renz Veers. Thank you, David, and welcome to this month's edition of Travel Radio Australia. Let's uh, just give you an idea of what's on the program today in numerical order. Firstly, Jeff Harrison will visit the Ice Bar in London, and he'll be chatting with uh, the marketing manager there, Tom Hunter. From there, we go to uh, the Italian town of Verona, historic town in Italy. Uh, Francis Beasley, our uh, European reporter, recently visited that particular part of the world, so we'll uh, hear her report. Thirdly, uh, we'll have Sue Ahern from Travel Riders Radio in Melbourne uh, interviewing renowned Australian demographer Bernard Salt about uh, the transport, or lack thereof, connecting uh, Australia's airports from the, the cities they serve. And then number four, the Around the World radio team in California, a good friends there led by Arthur von Wiesenberger, uh, chat with Mike Thiel, who has recently visited the French city of Lyon. And to complete the program, Jeff Harrison returns wrapping up uh, the show uh, by chatting with Austrian Winter Olympics medal winner Patrick Ortlieb at the uh, Montana Hotel in Oberlake in Austria. That's all happening on Travel Radio Australia. I'm fresh back from uh, a Pacific cruise on Legend of the Seas, uh, the smallest ship in the fleet of uh, Royal Caribbean. Just had a, a wonderful time, nine nights cruising to uh, places like... Where did we go? Well, we went to uh, Champagne Beach in Vanuatu, then on to Port Vila in Vanuatu, then uh, travelling across to Numea. Actually, no, before Numea, we uh, travelled to uh, another part of New Caledonia, Caledonia, the Loyalty Islands, where we uh, stopped over at a beautiful place called Li Fu for, uh, for the day. And then finally we finished in Numea. A word of advice, if you go to Numea, don't go on a Sunday because the whole town is closed. All the shops closed, apart from a few coffee shops and restaurants on, on the seafront, of course, and one big supermarket right near the cruise terminal. But apart from that little uh, hiccup, we had a great time, and uh, I can recommend the Royal Caribbean fleet. It's one, still one of my favourite cruise lines. Let's get on with the show. That's enough talk about cruising. Here's number one. This week we're in London at the fabulous Ice Bar just off Regent Street, a fabulous way to come to. And my guest is Tom Hunter, who's the head of sales and marketing here. Uh, Tom, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for coming in to see us. It's an absolute pleasure. And Tom, the Ice Bar, it's a real London institution. Tell us a bit about the background. Well, we've been going for 10 years now, just celebrated our 10th anniversary. We did that by uh, decorating the ice bar with a fantastic rock and roll theme. We thought full-on party this year. But what we do is we change the theme once a year. We have a team of ice artists coming all the way over from northern Sweden from the site of the famous ice hotel. And what they do, they bring about 40 tonnes of lovely natural river ice with them. They shape and carve that live here for one week in September. We're completely closed. We rebuild those 40 tonnes of ice into some amazing sculptures. This year, rock and roll, 10 years, we just thought, let's go all out for it. So if you're coming to see us before September this year, 
2016. That's what we'll be seeing. What we're doing now, literally this week, is deciding what the next theme is going to be, which is a huge creative... Well, how do I say it's a creative discussion? (laughs) I can imagine. And we've just been into the bar here and uh, the ice bar section, and it's full of skulls and fantastic, uh, you know, paint... Well, not paintings, but sculptures, ice sculptures on the walls. And tell us a bit about the artists who put it all together. So the team come over from Ice Hotel every year and are led by Jens Toms Iverson, who is creative director at Ice Hotel itself. And what we do is we spend a lot of time backwards and forwards trying to come up with a concept that's really going to work for our kind of audience. So we're right in the heart of London and we are... We're not a hotel, we're a bar, so we're trying to create quite a different experience from what the hotel is trying to create. They're very much an art installation project. We, at the end of the day... We all want people to come and have some great cocktails served in a nice glass and have an amazing fun time. So we get a lot of parties, a lot of celebrations, a lot of anniversaries. Those are our kind of core audiences. So we want something that's going to pop visually. Rock and roll, when you put a six-foot ice skull inside a bar that you can actually get inside and have a sort of lovely selfie moment with, that's the kind of thing that we're looking for. We also take a lot of time to put artworks into the art itself. As you mentioned, it's not sort of portraiture. What we're doing is we're actually putting ice design into those blocks of ice uh, we cut them in half and we're effectively we're stenciling into those those blocks we've got um, a six foot mural of an iconic rock singer at the moment she's ours we designed her herself uh, by a fantastic south african artist called joey hi-fi what he did is he designed a rock singer that belonged to us so you know, copyright we don't have any issues there no pictures of famous rock stars tracking us down uh, with their lawyers and so on but we wanted to put a whole load of tributes to iconic rock singers into that artwork so if you for people coming into the bar if they're checking out the tattoo sleeves that she's got on our arms they'll see lots of references to loads of other uh, sort of rock moments rock stars and so on hidden in there and again we're trying to create those little fun moments where people can come into the bar get a drink, realise just how cold it is. It's about minus five, minus seven in there most times. And after that, interact with the ice a little bit, kind of look at how beautiful it is naturally and also see some of the playful little moments that we've hidden for them to find. Well, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of famous people have visited you here and I'm, I'm sure you've hosted quite a few. Can you tell us a, a few of those without uh, you know, revealing any big secrets? Well, to be absolutely honest, yes, of course, we do uh, from... Uh, private events from time to time and we've seen one or two big name people wandering in but they always like to come in um, very much as a member of the audience that's kind of a big thing one thing we don't do is too much accommodating for people trying to jump the queue get ahead on the guest list or anything we we like to think we're a special venue but we don't like to think we're special in terms of being very exclusive we want everyone to be able to come in and have a fun time so there's no jumping the guest list there's none of that and no sort of filming your reality tv show while someone else is in the bar trying to have fun time as well ice bar 40 tons of ice it's, it's a space it's a controlled space so when you're in there you, know, you don't want to film crew or someone else you know, filming that. You want to have your moment, your time. So that's really, really important to us. Everyone's a you know, superstar, rock star when they come to us. And I notice even the glasses that you serve the drinks in are all ice, which is great. They are one of the best features of the bar, absolutely. So all of the ice, as I mentioned, is coming from the Tornay River in northern Sweden, site of the ice hotel, and that includes the ice glasses. They're individually made, so you're basically getting a very large block of ice from the river, cut out, machined, bored into, that's going to sort of take a drink. That's basically the same as if I poured you uh, something into a martini glass or, or that. So we're not doing it on the rocks, we're doing it in the rocks which means actually you know, you're getting a better serving, if you like, because we're not diluting it down with chipped ice. We're uh, giving you the pure cocktail in 
a block of ice itself. But those are very popular. What we do see from time to time is people um, trying to put them in their bags, take them home as a memento. And we say to you, good luck. We reckon you'll get as far as uh, Zone 2 on the tube before uh, you realise your mistake. Uh, Tom Hunter, Sales and Marketing Director for the Ice Bar here in London, Haddon Street, just, just off Regent Street. And Tom... What kind of cocktails can people have? I, I suppose you've got your own special concoctions for people. We do a full range inside the ice bar and also in our adjoining, uh, what we like to call our warm bar, which means basically a bar. Coming into the warm space, we can do a full range of great Negronis and aviation, classic takes on old fashions, anything you're looking for in an absolute classic cocktail mixed perfectly behind the bar. Inside the ice bar itself, the ice glass creates some challenges and also some needs to kind of do something a little bit different with that cocktail so we're mixing in the bar we're mixing for for taste we're mixing for color as well um you're serving something in a, in a block of ice you really want that to pop we want it to look as visually appealing as it is delicious to taste so we're mixing spirits based we're mixing champagne uh, with a range you know many different types of cocktail but they're all ours if you like so you can't get a martini or a margarita or something we'll be doing our takes on those to make sure they work inside the ice then we name them all this year we've named them all after classic rock songs so if you want a monkey wrench you want to say um we will rock you those are ours and to be honest we might have spent more time naming the cocktails than we did coming up with the theme because it was such an obvious winner and how can people find out more tom about the ice bar in london online very simple icebarlondon.com all the information you need is there. Phone number for our booking line, information about the uh, the bar itself and how it's made, and some great videos showing us chainsawing apart every year if you want to see how it's built. Tom Hunter, Sales and Marketing from the Ice Bar London. A pleasure to have you on the programme. Thanks very much, and uh, yeah, see you so back soon, I hope. This is Travel Radio Australia. Greetings, it's Francis here from the heart of Europe. Well, recently, I had the opportunity to go to what some may call the home of Shakespeare. Shakespeare supposedly based several of his works in the Italian city of Verona, namely Two Gentlemen from Verona, The Taming of the Shrew, and perhaps the far more famous Romeo and Juliet. The latter has attracted those from far and wide to seek out Juliet's balcony and have endless photos taken there. And naturally, the attempts to leave love padlocks on bridges in the vicinity is now legendary. In reality, the latter practice is now being banned in many European cities due to the irreparable damage being caused by the sheer weight of the locks. Italy boasts so many historic cities and towns that it's often difficult to know where to start. But Verona, which lies not too far from Venice, in the northern part of Italy, is a place that attracts lovers of romance, architecture, history and culture. The amphitheatre, which plays host to well-known operas such as Spartacus during its summer months, is without doubt one of the most incredible settings in the world in which to experience Italian culture at its finest. It is capable of holding 25,000 people, and is the third biggest amphitheatre in Italy. The annual opera festival is sold out months in advance, but this first-century Roman amphitheatre cannot fail to take your breath away. 
It is, of course, possible to visit the amphitheatre at most times of the year, but Verona as a whole has sadly become a massive tourist trap, with numbers boasting almost as many as Venice, especially on fine summer days. This, however, should not deter the visitor from exploring this magnificent city. It's easy to walk around, and with almost every building telling a story, it's a place that can easily be visited in a day. An early start, though, is a necessity to avoid queues at the more popular sites. Joint tickets for access to the various historical churches in Verona are available, allowing you to visit multiple buildings and to view archaeological excavations, some that date back as far as the 5th century. For those who prefer a meander through the colourful back streets, the old city of Verona will provide a wealth of photographic opportunities. And when it all becomes overwhelming, there is a plethora of restaurants and cafes in which to collapse to refresh the soul. As to be expected, the ones in the main area near the amphitheatre entrance are higher priced, less authentic and are catering for the masses. However, if you make the effort to wander a little further into the winding back streets of the city, you will quickly find many hidden gems that offer true Italian cuisine and a welcome at a much lower price. Verona's location on the Adige River is hard to beat and an espresso taken overlooking the riverbank may have you pondering what this city must have been like in Roman times. Its whole vibe creates a time warp in the mind. It can be unbearably hot in Verona during the peak summer months of June to September, whilst rain can make it a trial as well. The best time perhaps for a visit will be in February and March, when crowds are considerably less and temperatures are low without being freezing. The whole city is recognised as a UNESCO World Heritage Site and so far, fortunately, the preservation of the buildings has been kept in check. The fact that these buildings have survived numerous wars and invasions is nothing short of incredulous and doubtless accounts for the high volume of tourists who clamour to visit this majestic city. As with so much in the world today, it's a place that should be visited before it's too late and due to its location in Central Europe, it's relatively easy to add it on to an itinerary, particularly if you choose to visit Rome or Venice on the same trip. Access by train to the city or from Verona Airport makes it easy to visit and underground car parks are clearly marked with sufficient space provided you arrive early in the day. Either way, Verona provides an unforgettable insight into a culture of long ago. From me, Francis, Verona, Italy. Molto bene! And if you want to check out more on this, you can follow it on my website, piptravelnews.co.za. Until the next time, auf Wiedersehen! From Munich. This is Travel Radio Australia. I'm with Bernard Salt, the demographer, um, and here to talk about your work with the 
study into Australia's connectivity with international airports. I just wonder, what sort of reaction have you had so far? Uh, well, I've had a tremendous response. I think Australians are very aware of our isolation. I think we have grown up thinking we're on the edge of the earth and uh, we are mightily interested in places that we might be connected to. Anything that might reduce the tyranny of distance interests Australians. Uh, but there was also some interest from airports uh, as well. Uh, so, um, uh, particularly, I think, uh, around the dominance of Sydney in Australia. Um, that was certainly something that came out of the, uh, the study, that Sydney offers single-flight accessibility to 43 cities internationally, and however many domestically, but uh, 43 points of connection overseas, direct, uh, whereas the next largest is Melbourne with only 28. So Sydney Airport stands head and shoulders above the rest of Australia in terms of its connectivity to the rest of the world. So what advice would you have to places like Melbourne who have only got 28? What would you be telling the, perhaps the state government here? What would your advice be? Well, when you look at the connectivity of Sydney Airport to different cities across the world, there are all sorts of areas where Melbourne just does not compete. For example, Sydney offers a direct flight to Santiago, for example, as well as to Vancouver, as well as to San Francisco. Uh, Melbourne doesn't compete in that space. But I think the, the area where Melbourne can make up most ground is into second-tier Chinese cities. And so from Sydney, you can travel directly to Xi'an, for example, and a whole series of others that I can't quite pronounce. Um, uh, whereas Melbourne only offers access to two cities that Sydney does not offer access to. One uh, is into Brunei, uh, and the other is into the uh, Chinese city of um, Chengdu, uh, which, again, I've never really heard of. Um, so if Melbourne wants to up the ante and compete with Sydney Airport as a destination for international travel uh, or even just to boost Melbourne's connectivity to the rest of the world, then I think the easiest way to do that is to build relationships with second-tier Chinese cities. The reality is there are any number of cities between 5 million and 10 million that most Australians, including myself, have never heard of previously, like Chengdu or Wuhan is another one, which offers a direct flight between uh, mainland China at Wuhan and Kulangata. Um, so there's any number of possibilities for Melbourne to build stronger connectivity. Equally, if I was Sydney Airport, I would look to um, uh, snaffle or snare those points of connection uh, into Sydney rather than to allow it to go to Brisbane or Melbourne or Perth for that matter. So I suppose that sort of reinforces the fact that Australia's business and tourism future is with Asia and in particular China. Well that is very much the case. In fact when you look at all the points of connectivity between Australian cities and uh, cities abroad in terms of single flight accessibility uh, then we have uh, strong connections into, uh, into Asia. In fact if you look at the points of connection, which international cities have most points of connection into Australia. There's only 11 cities in Australia that you can fly internationally from, the five capital cities, uh, as well as Coolangatta, Sunshine Coast, Cairns, Townsville, in fact uh, Port Hedland uh, is another, and, and Darwin. Um, uh, the cities that are most connected into Australia are in fact Denpasar, so from nine Australian cities you can fly direct to Denpasar 
and the second highest point of connectivity is into Auckland, where you have eight points of connection. Um, the next one is uh, Singapore, which is eight, and Hong Kong, Hong Kong, Bangkok, um, Kuala Lumpur, and so forth. And then a range of Chinese cities as well as Tokyo. Uh, I think there are five points of connection into uh, into Tokyo. Uh, so we are our future. You can see the points of connection, um, which probably reflect trade as well as increasingly student numbers and migration building stronger points of connection into uh, Southeast Asia and even North Asia. In fact, uh, this is where I would be building airport connectivity. Interestingly, if you go to somewhere like Adelaide, Adelaide has fewer points of international connection than does Coolangatta. Coolangatta offers 10, uh, Adelaide offers 8. And in fact, you cannot fly from Adelaide to any mainland Chinese city. You can fly to Hong Kong direct from Adelaide. But again, I think that it shows where Adelaide and South Australia needs to build relationship, builds connectivity uh, into these emerging middle-class cities of China. So how does Australia compare with um, other countries, say, um, you mentioned in the survey that London has the most in the world. How, do, how does Australia stack up? Well, we, we ran this analysis of looking at other cities. So um, if Sydney has 43 points of connectivity, then how does, say, London compare? And so if you live in London, how many other cities can you get to from an international airport in a single flight? And the interesting thing with London is that there are a number of international airports. So there is Heathrow, of course, and Stansted and Gatwick and London City, uh, as well as Luton, uh, and another one that I hadn't heard of called Southend, uh, which you can actually fly to, uh, to France from. If you add in all of the points of connectivity and eliminate duplicates, then if you are a resident of London, Greater London, 10 million people live in Greater London, uh, you can get access to 355 cities from New York, and there are three airports in New York, you can get access to about 220 cities. There's simply not, there's not a Europe just nearby where you can fly to all these destinations. The only destination, the only city that would compare with London, Greater London, is Hong Kong, which also coincidentally offers 355 points of connectivity, so mostly throughout Asia, of course. Uh, so the most connected cities on the planet are in fact London and Hong Kong. New York is not anywhere, and even Paris uh, and, and Dubai. These cities offer maybe 200, 220 cities. Uh, London and Hong Kong are in a league of their own. If you want to live in the most cosmopolitan, accessible cities on earth, then you can make a choice between Hong Kong and London. So why was this work carried out? What was the purpose of the research? Uh, interest. <laughs> Just it... it, it um, uh, struck my fancy as an interesting sort of study to do. It was easy to do because through um, a number of websites you can just punch in the airport and it up will pop all of the destinations on the planet. There's a bit of accounting to make sure you're not double counting where you have multiple airports in a, uh, in a city. Uh, but again, I think it goes to how connected and how global a city is. You often hear uh, politicians and premiers talking proudly about how their city is a global city well, you know, it's kind of not if it doesn't have strong points of connectivity into a number of world cities. Sydney is a global city, at least by Australian standards. Uh, it's not a global city by Hong Kong standards or London standards. In fact, it's a long way short. But by Australian standards, yes, Sydney is the portal through which the Australian nation and economy deals with the rest of the world.
And until that nexus is broken uh, by Melbourne or Brisbane or Perth, uh, then Sydney will dominate. And uh, it all comes down to connectivity, in my view. Thank you very much. My pleasure. This is Travel Radio Australia. Speaking of uh, great ways to travel and uh, wonderful ways to go, there's a super website called hideaways.com, which uh, I've used over the years to find out the best of travel. Mm -hmm. uh, they have uh, villas, they have hotels, they have boutiques that you would never guess about staying at, as well as uh, cruises, uh, all kinds of cool things. And the man from Hideaways is joining us live from the East Coast, Mike Thiel. Hello, Mike. Hello, Arthur. Welcome aboard. Nice to have you on. It's good to hear your voice again. Good to be there again. And, uh, you know, we were just talking, you and I were talking the other day about places in France to, that were great to uh, consider that were a little bit different from the usual destinations, you know. And uh, you came up with one that really uh, got tweaked my interest. Well, yes. You know, actually, uh, the, the thinking behind it was that everybody always goes to the prime places that you need to go and see and do. And when, when this fall we were headed to France, we, we were flying into Lyon, and we said, you know, I've never heard anybody say I'm going to Lyon. Everybody says I'm going to Paris. Mm -hmm. uh, and for that matter, uh, we had had some interesting rushes with other places that you'd just never even think of going. Uh, we sent uh, some members to Liverpool. They were Beatles fans. They had a wonderful time. They didn't go to London at all. They went to Liverpool. Huh. And. And, and more recently, we ourselves went to Milwaukee, and we could talk about that some other time, but great city, lots to do and see in Milwaukee. So let's focus on, on Lyon. Uh, our theme, I think, is second cities, places that you're not really going to on the radar necessarily for the first instance. And uh, I'd have to tell you that uh, we were really surprised by Lyon. We, we were very, very impressed with it. And, and frankly, I think it makes a great alternative to going to Paris. I'd go to, back to Lyon sooner than I'd go to Paris, to be quite honest. That's amazing. And, yeah. Because, I mean, Lyon, for folks who are looking at a map, pretty much is in the heart of France, right? Uh, yeah, it's sort of southeastern France. Um, and it has the reputation of being the gastronomic capital of, of France. <laughs> it's it's at, right at the intersection of the Rhone and the Saône rivers. Mm -hmm. both of which are very famous for their wine districts, the Rhone for Chateauneuf-du-Pape and Rhone wines, uh, the Saône for Macon and Chalon-Fousseur, and, um, and up into the Burgundy areas and so forth, um, and Beaujolais, Burgundy, etc. cetera. Uh, so it's a really pretty area. Um, the city itself... Um, has all the things that you love about Paris. The, the architecture is great. Uh, the food is fantastic at all levels. Um, you know, that, that's where Paul Bocuse got his start. And, and in fact, he's, he's very much a, a feature of the city. He has his institute, Paul Bocuse, there for teaching youngsters uh, how to come up in the chefing world. Uh, there's some other uh, chef schools there as well. Um, but, but then you don't have to eat at the high end either, like the, the Bocuse restaurants. There's Bouchons, which are sort of the country uh, cooking specialized uh, uh, bistros. Uh, they're, they're wonderful, and, and Leon is famous for its Bouchons. Very heavy on the meat, um, but great meats. Um, and, and just the shopping in, in Leon is great. It, it, it's, it's a fabulous city. 
And um, as far as hotels, um, do you find an interesting place to stay? We found a fantastic place to stay. There's two hotels that we would recommend there. And, and I have to tell you, Arthur, we did something that is highly unusual for hideaways. We flew into Lyon via Charles de Gaulle. And you know how it is after you've taken an extra flight and crossing the Atlantic, et cetera. You're sort of tired. Mm-hmm. The hotel that we stayed at was the Villa Florentine, and it's up in the Fouvier Hills overlooking old Lyon. Lyon has sort of got two sections of it. It was settled way back in Roman times, and they still have Roman amphitheaters there that you can walk around and check out and see, and, and you know, a, a history and a, and a culture that goes way, way back. But anyway, this hotel sits up there on in what was used to be an old convent, and it has all of the the, the features of a convent. You check in through the, the chapel, basically, which has been redone as a hotel lobby. Uh, our room overlooked the old city below. It has a deck with a heated swimming pool, huge jacuzzi, couple of reclining stone. Uh, chaises that were heated electrically, lovely, just mm. sitting there looking out over all of Leon and, and a sauna to boot. And, and so what we did was, instead of running around the city as we normally do, we said, you know, this hotel is so great, let's just sit here and enjoy it for an afternoon or a morning. We'll check out things later in the day. And, and, and we did have plenty of time to check out Leon. Well, I say you could stay a week in Leon and not do it all justice. So we had a couple of days there and tried to cram in as much as we could. But the hotel was wonderful. I understand uh, that the uh, that, uh, the old town of Leon is a UNESCO heritage site. Did you have a chance to explore uh, some of those uh, architectural wonders? Oh yeah, you know it, they have the tabouls there, which are the the corridors that uh, that they used to use in the Middle Ages to keep the the silks out of the, uh, the rain when they were carrying them around. It was a big silk trade in Lyon, and it comes from, from Florence. In the Middle Ages, apparently, a lot of folks decided to leave Florence, and they went to Lyon. So silk trade was a big deal there. Um, we walked all around. It's a very walkable city. We walked all around the old quarter, wonderful shopping areas down below near to the river, uh, Basilica at the top. It even has, by the way, its own little mini uh, Eiffel Tower sitting up on the hill there. <laughs> it's, it's quite prominent, although it's not as big as the real Eiffel Tower. It looks but beautiful. The other hotel, by the way, is, uh, is a Paul Bouchon hotel. It's called Le Royale, uh, and it is down on, the, um, on, on the, the beautiful square that's in the center of town. It's a huge, huge square. And, and the Institut Paul Bocuse for teaching all these young chefs is a part of that hotel complex. It's a much more traditional hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't have a pool, doesn't have all those sorts of things, but very nice boutique hotel. Now, you could, you could fly into Paris and take the TGV down there, right? That would be another way to get there? You, you can, and that's how we got back to Paris. But you know something? It's interesting. Actually, some of the code shares and the air fares that you will probably pull up include a TGV leg. We decided not to do that. I felt a little uncertain about doing that and having to sort of negotiate and find the train and, you know, get, get, get your luggage over and so forth. So we did, just did a, a connecting flight. 
but you can do the TGV, yes. And, and I think the TGV goes right through Charles de Gaulle, so it's really probably not much of a, of a deal. Hmm. And um, I know that there's also, for foodies, um, there is that incredible Paul Bocuse uh, market, isn't there? Did you go to that? We did not make it to the market. I did make it to one of his restaurants. He has four restaurants. Uh, identified by the points of the compass, north, south, east, west. Mm. Uh, we had lunch in his southern uh, restaurant, which specializes in Mediterranean cuisine, and it was quite good. Uh, I can't say that it was the best meal I've had in my life, but it was good. Wow. Now, um, tell me, uh, if, if Mike, if people want to know more about hideaways, they can go to your website. Can they also book uh, trips like, well, we, like this? Yes, absolutely. We have a very specialized travel uh, counseling service to help handhold uh, our members through the booking process wherever they want to go, whatever they want to do. And we specialize in the boutique hotels and, uh, as you indicated earlier, as, w- as well as the small cruise ships and so forth. And we sail most of the smaller cruise ships. And we go around the world checking out all these places and reporting on them. We actually haven't written about the on yet. That'll be in the next issue of our uh, members newsletter, Hideaway's Life. Um, that and Marseille we'll be talking about, where we also visited on this trip for a couple of days, and also another great second city to visit if you're not, you know, if you've done Paris already and you're tired of it, get some other French culture. News and features from around Australia and around the world. This is Travel Radio Australia. This week we're broadcasting from Lech in Austria, and I have as my guest Patrick Ortley. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Yeah. And welcome along to the program, Patrick. It's very nice to have you uh, on air. Tell me a bit about your background. I believe you were a bit of a, a great skier for Austria, and uh, you've had a great racing career. Yeah, thanks for asking. It's uh, quite a long time ago. I was in the World Cup circuit for over 12 years and I was very happy to win one an Olympic gold medal at the Olympics in Albertville. I also won the World Championship in Sierra Nevada, all in downhill and for sure the biggest victory you can have as an Austrian downhill skier is to win the Hanenkam in Kitzbühel. It's one of the greatest races you have to win and yeah, all in all it was a very, very nice career. I traveled all over the world, I saw so many different uh, ski resorts, and I always come home back again. Here to Lek, and uh, your hotel here, tell us a bit about that. We had, I had a fabulous lunch there with uh, Hubert, one of the, the local personalities, and, and it's really well set up. Yeah, my parents uh, founded a hotel when I, I wasn't born. It was nearly 50 years ago. And they started a very tiny place, and it grew up and grew up. And my wife and myself, we are managing it now for over 20 years. And we have very international guests, very uh, nice guests. We have more than 85% returning guests, so that means they're satisfied how we make it. And, yeah, we are open during the winter season. We are located directly on the slopes, so skiing, ski out perfect and everything you need for a nice winter holiday and just give us the name of the hotel yeah our hotel it's named the montana and yeah it's 
Lake Montana and it's a state in, in the States, yeah. <laughs> and, and the great thing is you've got that lovely big sun deck uh, on the beautiful days, uh, bluebird days you can sit out there, or even if it's just snowing, it's all nicely heated and everything. It's a great spot. Yeah, people love to sit outdoor. It doesn't matter how cold it is, so they want to enjoy fresh air and see the mountains and the sky. So we have everything heated, and yeah, they enjoy the lunch outside, and I'm very happy to be a host for all the guests. Now, you're a real local here in Lech in Austria and in the Alberg region, and tell us a couple of your favourite little spots that you like to hang out, the, the, the local secret spots. If people are coming over to Lech to ski, uh, where should they head to, apart from the, your hotel, of course, Montana? Yeah, all in all, uh, Lech is very famous for skiing, so skiing is the the main thing why the guests are coming here. So we ski is 330 degrees, so if you know when and which time you have to be where, you always have the sun. So that's very unique here. We don't have just one mountain on one face and ski all the day there. You ski, as I told, 360 degrees. And there are little stops you can make. If you ski, for example, the Weisse Ring, that's one of the biggest uh, ski tours you can make here. You make 22 kilometers and five and a half thousand vertical feet. So once you stop first, maybe at the, the Rivikopf, that's a very nice little restaurant uh, where you start, you have your first hot chocolate, and when you have it half done, you go to the Palmar, it's the best uh, party location up there. Great sun deck, best view, good music. So when you want to have a little fun, you to be there and for the end if you like it very cozy like in Austria real hot you go to the Hut Alpe you have nice fondue candlelight uh, dark wood and how you expect Austria yes it's a it's a great place here Lek and it's such been such a pleasure to be here and can you give us the website for the Montana if people want to visit you know uh, what would uh, how can they get there online it's Montana and, and the place where we stay, so our website is Montana Overlech, written in one word, .at or com, whatever you want. We're very international, but it's Montana Overlech, written in one word. Patrick Ortlieb, gold medalist from Austria in the Winter Olympics. Thank you very much for being on the program this week. Thank you so much for having this nice interview. And that's it for another edition of Travel Radio Australia. I'd like to thank all the contributors, Jeff Harrison, Francis Beasley, Sue O'Hearn from Travel Writers Radio, the Around the World Radio team in California, led by Arthur von Wiesenberger, and, of course, featuring uh, Peter Noon, uh, Martha Bull, and their guest, Mike Thiel, and uh, Patrick Ortlieb at the Montana Hotel in Oberlake. All these people made our show memorable this month. Until we meet again next month with the next edition of Travel Radio Australia, I'm Renz Weirs, wishing you all happy trails. You have been listening to Travel Radio Australia. The show was produced and hosted by Renz Weirs. It can be played or downloaded from TravelRadioAustralia.com, TravelCastNetwork.com, the iTunes Store, or listen to the show on TuneIn Radio.